Hi, in today's Tech Lesso podcast, we are joined by Brent Warner. Brent is a professor of English as a second language at Irvine Valley College. He's a regular presenter on EdTech integration in classrooms. He co-hosts two podcasts, the Diesel Podcast, which delves into innovative tech strategies for language learning with his co-host, Ishel Reyes, and the Higher Tech Podcast, which is a guide for higher education professionals navigating the vast realm of educational technology in addition to podcasts and his other work, he also hosts an AI and ESL website. Thank you very much for joining us, Brent. Yeah, thank you for having me. I don't know if you recall, but we met briefly at the Palm Springs Q conference. We were both doing the Q boons. Oh, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, before that session, you may recall that you were on a panel regarding AI and equity. Could you share some of the insights from, I don't know if you remember the conversation, but just some of the, the issues you see regarding equity and AI? Yeah, I mean, that was that was a great panel. And I kind of, I showed up on stage and I'm like, oh my gosh, how can I, because, <laughs> you know, I was up there with like, you know, Ken Shelton and, you know, uh, Delanair and all these people. So I'm like, oh my gosh, do I have anything to add here? But um, turns out, luckily, I, f I feel like I did a little bit, uh, but it was great. Um, so there was a lot of conversation just around, I mean, especially at that point, and I think this fear kind of continues is like, is there going to be a future around education and AI, right? And I, you know, I think the big answer is yes, but there's also a lot of changes that are going to keep happening, right? And so, so that conversation kind of, you know, led into a lot of the concerns about, um, you, you know, is this equitable, um, especially on the back end of AI and the training and where that's all coming from is like, who is this representing? Who is, you know, what students is this showing as you're, as you're making, you know, these uh, predictive texts and all these types of things. So um, I, I think I gave an example at that point that I had had done um, with the uh, Canva text to image generator. And I said, make a man uh, standing on a pier or something like that. And it was all like a white man, right? Like every single time. And so there's no sense of trying to balance out like, and it gave several different examples, right? So it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever different examples. And, and they all kind of look like the same guy. And so it's like, well, where's this training data coming from? How is it learning? And how is that showing out, you know, giving people the same app access to opportunity um, in you know, and the same access to representation through everything. And so that's a big question that I think is happening in a lot of AI. And um, uh, unfortunately, it kind of comes to education last because nobody's really coming and asking educators about like, hey, what do we what do we need to represent? What do we need to show here? It's just like coming up from those companies at first. And so then whatever data they're pulling from, which maybe the vast majority of the data is like, you know, I don't white guys or you know or um tech bros or you know whoever else it is that's in, in charge of these things are by default they're the ones who are putting in the data or putting in the information and so that's what's coming out of it as well and so they're actually 
doesn't need to be a free-for-all check it needs to be guided in certain ways right and so i think those conversations are what needs to be opened up a lot more um you know representation for women so that girls see themselves as they're learning as they're hearing their voices going through um you know for minorities for people with uh you know uh different learning uh needs all those types of things are going to have to come in and be recognized uh, as we come up and through through this world of education ai and is this world actually customized to me? Because it has a really, really wonderful opportunity to do all that and to be all that. But at the moment, it's not quite. And so I think that's where we're uh, we're seeing a lot of issues coming up. And um, uh, I think one of the examples that I gave in that in that uh, panel presentation, and it still hasn't changed, is that my wife is um, you know is a second language an English as a second language learner, and Alexa still after years of talking to her and saying turn on the living room lights still doesn't understand her. <laughs> and wow. like I, yeah, so I still have to follow up and and like actually say it myself as a you know the whatever the American accent the clear the clear perfect American right. accent I guess right which is made up itself but right that's what air quotes there I need to, yeah. to let you all know yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so so we're still seeing that it hasn't really you know it's like there's claims that it like adjusts and flies and changes all the time um and we'll talk about my co-host Ishelle on the other show so I get um transcribed auto transcribed so I can put transcriptions of the podcast on my show and every time it gets Ishelle's name wrong it does doesn't recognize because I X C H E L L. And so right. it either says Michelle or it says he shall, or, you know, like it gives all these different things and it's never once gotten her name right. Despite the fact that I typed it in at this point, you know, almost a hundred, you know, on a hundred episodes of transcripts. Wow, and so you would learn it. Yeah. So, so we're still not quite there yet, but it's, it's interesting and, and hopefully at some point it'll get there, but it's not balanced out in the way that we're, we're really looking for and that we're imagining for the future. By experiencing these biases, as you talked about, because we see it ties into the media literacy piece where people see these technologies as objective based on math and so on. It's real important for people to understand that there are biases based on the training data. Yeah. And I think these failures in AI as we see them are a good opportunity for teachers to talk to their students about those things as well. Because the more that we can point out to our students, hey, look what look what this is doing or look what this is missing, then the better sense that they get of like, oh, this isn't just a perfect thing that does everything for me. It's something that creates itself and we have to guide it and we have to understand what we're asking it to do. So I think that's really, um, you know, even though we might not like what it's coming out with, it actually gives us more opportunity for critical thinking and for our students to consider what's going on uh, with that so that then they can be the, you know, the future leaders who help keep making those changes as it goes on. Absolutely. That's a great point. And while we're talking about AI uh, text to image generators, I know that you've written and, and talked about how those kind of tools can support English learners. Uh, would you Talk a little bit about that, about how uh, those tools can help English learners. Yeah, so um, so I brought 
uh, chat GPT into my class back in January. Um, so, I, you know, January of 2023. So it came out in uh, the end of November. Right. Um, and so we went, we went right into it. And luckily I had a cohort of teachers that was willing to go along with me and, and, uh, and take the dive in there. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we started looking at it and trying to figure out ways that students could actually use this to help them build their language skills. Right. And so, um, so a lot of the students at that point still were kind of unaware or had only heard a little bit of it. And so they started playing with it and they were really fascinated with how they could interact with it. Um, so one of the classes that I teach is um, uh, academic writing. So it's uh, pre-college, pre-transfer level academic writing so that students get used to uh, being able to write, you know, in academic styles for for their college classes and things like that. Um, and so uh, we do, we use it for a lot of different things, trying to help them get feedback on what's working and what's not working and what they're understanding. Um, so we give it some prompts and, and this these were still early days, so I still hadn't mastered and still haven't i mean it takes a long time but haven't mastered all the um you know the the best uh the best way to put the prompts together but we were having it uh analyze students work and then they would come back and analyze uh what the what chat gpt had said about them so so i had students write an essay in class and then i put it into chat gpt and i said hey please um please analyze this look for grammar issues look for things that might not be natural language forms and then um you know and then write up an analysis and so then i copied that analysis and i put it right back into the students google docs so that then they could look at the feedback that it came from them so they're going oh okay wait what's going on because i was still chat gp2 3.5 and it was you know whatever but they're uh but then they were looking at it and then i said okay now i want you to go in and look at what uh, ChatGPT said about your paper and about your writing and reflect on it and tell me what you agree with and what you disagree with about what it's telling you, right? And so, so then that gave them the motivation because they weren't really just it wasn't just nothing. It was about them, right? And it's about how these computers or how these how these bots are processing them. And they're saying, oh, okay, wait a second. Some of these things are right, but some of these things are wrong. So, like, I had a student um, who noticed that it said, oh, you should have capitalized homework or something like that, right? And it's like, well, why would you capitalize homework? That's not a proper noun. You know, it's not the beginning of a sentence. It's not a proper noun. And they they recognized that. And they said, well, it's telling me this wrong grammar point, but but I think I was right. And so I actually asked them to look for a couple of things that are right, a couple of things that are wrong. And so then again, they're using that as a way to automatically get feedback. And then once they understand that process, they can do it for themselves. Because one of the big things about learning a language with many students is they, they're in class and they do it in class time and then they go home and they're speaking their L1, right? Their first language. And so, uh, and then they're not, and then they just say, oh, well, I'll ask my teacher about it next week when I go back to class or whatever it is. And it's too late by then. So, so now they can have kind of an instant uh, TA right there at their fingertips. And anytime they want to check on something, they can do this. Um, my second language is Japanese, and I do this too with my own Japanese. And sometimes I'll put it in, I'll say, "Hey, is this right?" And it gives me this feedback, and it says, "Oh, this would be a better way to say it." And then um, I went in and did this the other day, and it said, "I said, well, I, I actually don't like what you're saying because aren't you kind of giving me an overly formal style? Like I, my my Japanese level is good enough that I can recognize that." And I said isn't this a little bit too formal? I'm trying to be kind of casual in my writing here. And then they're like, oh yeah, you're right. Then what you said is fine. 
<laughs> so it's like, okay, so um, so it, it's good, again, with this idea that you need to understand where you are a little bit, you need to have a realistic understanding of where you are. So it doesn't mean that it's going to take over your learning of your language learning for you. It means that you're going to have to be able to know where you are, so that when you're getting feedback from it, that it can, you can balance out your knowledge with its, uh, I don't want to say knowledge, but with its information coming forward. Right. And I, I want to highlight what a great example that is of a way to use AI in education, not just for English learners, but for anyone where you are modeling ways that students can use it independently to to enhance their own learning in whatever topic it is, whether it's language learning or anything else. I think that's very powerful. Some educators are, they kind of have this very binary idea of AI and they, you know, there's the problem of cheating and, and that's definitely a concern but they're not seeing some of the uses and I think consequently because that's the culture in some places students don't want to teachers and students don't talk about using AI together and this way mm -hmm. when you're modeling it and they say okay that's okay and this is obviously an ethical use of it and a very productive use I think I think that's real powerful and I'd like to see uh, more of that kind of thing so how do teachers move in this direction? I think there's a lot of fear, especially teachers don't feel like, well, you know, these two guys are tech guys and sure they know it, but I'm not a tech person. How do I, how do I move forward with this? Because they want to support their students, but they're, they're nervous about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get this question quite a lot because people people say the same thing. It's like, you know, oh, well, you know all about technology. And it's like, well, I don't know any more about this than than anyone else did starting, you know, less than a year ago. Um, the, this is all this is all brand new. Unless you're really an AI specialist and you actually dug into this stuff beforehand, there's very few people out there. All these people who are talking about it, claiming to be experts on it, they're lying. I mean, I'll just say it straight out. They're not. They're not experts. Like, there's no ultimate guy you know i mean like hey we're all helping each other while learning all these things but one we're still at the baby steps with all of this right so it's the very beginning and there's no reason not to take a few steps the second thing is when you start playing with this, you'll actually see that you can actually talk back and forth with this technology because that's how it's built is it's a conversation, right? It's a chat bot. And so when you start asking it questions and asking it to clarify a little bit, then it will it will do that. It'll clarify. And you, and you can even ask it to tell you things that you don't know or that you wouldn't have thought of, right? So you could say, hey, I'm not sure how to do this. What are some ideas on ways to ask you chat GPT right. or Bing or Bard or whatever about this. And it will actually give you some feedback on that too. Right. So it's like, so the, the user's guide is inherently built into it, the, the program itself. Right. And so, so it gets tricky when you're, when people are thinking, well, I have to know how to use everything well before I can start using it. And we say, well, no, that's not true. You have to start being willing to use it, and then you will become you will become able to use it well as time goes on, right? But then um, I think the other part is that 
I think that the students will build that trust. And I found this for myself. They'll build that trust with you much more, much more openly if you're talking about using it and you're talking about ways that it can be used in the class, because then they start going, oh, the teacher knows about it. The teacher understands parts of these things. They're trying to help me see ways to step forward with this. If not, then they're going to do it by themselves. Right. And they're, they already know about it. Of course. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, there's no doubt. There's no question. Students are out there using this stuff. Right. But are they using it in ways? ways that are actually helping them to learn or are they using it in ways that they think is just going to be a shortcut to getting the work done and so if you are as a teacher are bringing it in and saying hey this is a tool that we actually use and this is this is these are some of the ways that we use it and the ways that it can help you then we're going to start having conversations with students about what the value of learning this stuff is rather than uh the rush to get through an assignment, for example, right? right? And so so trying to balance that out where, where uh, and I think this is a real big shift for a lot of people, is that um, we're now looking at a future of education that is no longer about completing a certain amount of assignments, but it really is, you know, this, this phrase that we've used in Q and different organizations for a long time, no longer that idea of sage on the stage, but the guide on the side. So right. now how are we guiding the students and how are we working together with them to help them achieve whatever their individualized goals are? Because the technology can certainly do a huge amount of that lift work for them and, and with them. Them. And then we can kind of talk about what that means and what parts of their learning are valuable to them now and what parts of their learning are things that, you know, maybe not today, but within a couple of years, we'll say, start saying, well, those are things that are no longer things that we need to learn about because they're automated processes that go on in the background. So now what do we want to learn and where do we want to step forward to from here? Right. I think that's going to be important to have these conversations with students. I just see for the foreseeable future because... How much help is too much help? And I think students want to know that. I know when I was finishing my dissertation, I was using a chat GPT like Grammarly a bit. And there were times where I asked myself, is this cool? You know, am I am I being unethical? And when I thought about it, I thought I can't even ask my professors about this because they don't know any better than I do. Uh, <laughs> and when I've done PD on this topic and we go through different scenarios of how much help is too much, people disagree. On mm-hmm. well, if I have it create an outline for me, is that too much help? If I have it create my topic sentences, if I have it go through and fix my grammar, is that is that too much help? And that's a it's a real good discussion to have. I think in the panel at Q, Ken Shelton was talking about how well imagine it as a person. If it's your older brother or a teacher or a tutor or a friend giving you that help, is that too much help? And consider that when considering how much help is too much help. But I think your point about these ongoing conversations that you have with students about how it can help you and is is just valuable. And we're going to have to keep on doing that. And I don't see that stopping at any point uh, soon. No, no, I agree. Yeah, it's going to keep on going and it'll shift, right? That, That conversation will change as we, you know, as the next thing comes out or as the the better the better iteration of this moves into the next thing, then we're, you know, we're going to have to start really talking about where do our values lie and what we're learning right? right and 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 that's going to be a harder conversation the younger the students get on that the harder the conversation is because younger kids don't really know they're like i don't know i do my my mom just tells me that i have to do this or whatever it right. was right as we get into my level at the high school or at the at the college level and and the high school level as well then students start having a better sense right you're like oh i really want to learn about this and and it'll be it'll be more important for me to internalize this whereas that is something that is not going to you know provide me as much 
much value, even though the few times that I might use it in my lifetime, I now have access to the information or whatever. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting future we're stepping into. Right. Right. I just also want to reiterate the point that you just, that you made a, a few moments ago about the teacher knows about this because I've seen lots of situations where it's hidden, where, you know, the, the students are like, this is my secret little private life, almost like social media. And, you know, I don't want the teacher to know about it, but this, when you, when you let them know that you know about it, I think that's really powerful. And then they, they, you know, they can, they can kind of act accordingly and maybe focus on what's, what's the best use for AI. Yeah. Um, in one of as we're on this topic, you wrote, I think, in one of your blog posts, maybe it was a podcast, that there's a moral imperative to teach AI. Could you, mm. could you <laughs> tell us more about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this this is it, you know, it ties into the same idea. So I, I I say this at almost every presentation that I give on the on the topic, which is you know, we we do have a moral imperative to teach our students about it because our job as educators. Um, you know, regardless of what our field is, you know, you can be ESL like me, you can be a math teacher, you can be a, uh, you know, biology, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, our job is to prepare students for a future that doesn't exist, right? And so if we are hiding our head in the sand about this technology, then we are by default not helping our students understand the key technology that will be a part of every student's future life, right? As they become adults, as they work in whatever industries exist in the future, all of those types of things are going to be absolutely integrated together with some levels of artificial intelligence right i mean unless they're unless they're going to be a hipster farmer that's doing it the old amish way and no there's no technology involved um which would be cool like and you could support that too but is uh, hipster farmer one of those uh, jobs <laughs> of the future that uh, we that don't exist it probably will be <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised there's there's always a desire to go back right uh, to that's, simpler that's times right. but um but uh but Regardless, the, these students are going to be stepping into whatever business, whatever work they're doing in the future, and they will be using this technology. So if we as teachers are not helping them understand it, helping them play with it, use it, look at it, under you know, work with it, then we are hiding something from them that they are going to be using, that they're going to have access to, and which, by the way, they already do have access to. So now we're going to... Instead, we should be saying, hey, if if we're really if our job is to really care about what these students are going to achieve in the future, if we if our job is really like to help them to live a more successful life or a better life, and then all of a sudden I'm going to be hiding the biggest technology change and, you know, in the history of technology, probably, you know, I mean, I, I argue that this AI is probably more powerful than the internet, probably, you know, more powerful than elect the invention of electricity, or maybe equal to the invention of electricity, right? And just to say, well, we're not going to deal with that, because I don't personally feel comfortable with it. That's a problem from my side and 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 it affects the students right and so so i would say that we really need to reflect on why do we have the feelings right is it a threat to us and, and it could be and, I, and i'm not saying those are not legitimate concerns and fears but what i'm saying is that our real ultimate job is to help those students to be successful in the future and if we're pushing things or keeping it keeping it away from them then we're actually doing them a disservice ultimately and so um so I do believe that we have a moral imperative to actually work with these things to help our students understand it. And, and by the way, we can do this in a way that helps them understand how to use it 
well and to use it right and in a way that is beneficial to them and in a way that helps them to learn. Um, and we have the real opportunity here to shape what the future of learning and education looks like and to help guide people so that in the future that they're ready to use these in ways that are beneficial to more people uh, moving forward from their uh, future perspective. I wonder if you could add some more specifics. Uh, you thought we've been talking about AI on a general level, and if you could add some more specifics about how AI can help English learners, and I think there'll be applications elsewhere. Uh, so some of the image generators, uh, I've had students, for example, you can give them um, some prompts and see what they come up with, right? But you can also give them a picture and you can tell them to try to go into, uh, you know, MidJourney or Canva or whatever it is. And you can say, hey, describe this picture and then see what AI comes That's up with brilliant. and how close it is to match it, right? So they can use that as as opportunities for building descriptive language, for building, um, you know, their adjectives, and, you know, the it, depending on how how intense or how, how, you know, complicated you want it to be. And then you can actually have them discussing with each other, well, why did yours come out this way? And why did mine come out this way? What words did you use to be able to make, um, you know, you're trying to kind of uh, replicate the Mona Lisa here. Um, what what did you say to make her hair look like that, or what did you say to make um, you know her smile look kind of weird, or whatever else it is, right? And so, and then you can put uh, you know barriers on it for the students as well. So if if you're doing, for example, the Mona Lisa, you'd say, well you definitely cannot say the name of this picture when you're trying to describe it for them, right? So you can't say the Mona Lisa smile or whatever else it is, right? Um, and so so you can put these uh, restrictive barriers on the students and so then they can see what they can come up with through that. Um, then building on top of that, you can actually do, there's a common um, uh, English language learner activity where one student will tell another student what they're looking at and then the student will try to draw it and then back and forth but you could do that through AI so you could say hey I'm going to tell you what I'm seeing and then um, I'm going to type it in and I'm going to get the generated picture and then I'm going to try to describe the generated picture and we're going to go back and forth a few times so it's kind of like that um, you know that uh, that that secret message back and forth and back and forth and then what is the final and you know the, the whispers game right that comes up if you go around the right. train or whatever and so what's the final result and then they can have a lot of fun with it too and they can say well where do we think the mistake was made right where do we think where do we think the biggest gap happened in the change between the conversation or whatever else it is going on so there's lots of fun ways to play with language that way and then also now there's um you can get plugins uh, directly for uh, ChatGPT. So you can actually get plugins so students can voice and they can talk directly to it and then it'll read back to them, right? And so, wow. um, so you can actually the ChatGPT app on the iPhone and I think on the Android already has the voice option built in, but on the uh, homepage, it doesn't quite yet. And so, uh, but you can get a plugin there. You can talk to it. And then the plugin, I think it's called, uh, you know, text to GPT or speak, speak to GPT or voice control, something like that. You can look them up, but, um, but it'll actually read it out in an, you know, it'll read out what it says. And so then you're actually almost having a back and forth conversation with it. Right. So you can say, Hey, you know, hey, ChatGPT, what's the weather looking like in Los Angeles today, right? And it'll say, oh, you know, uh, whatever it says, then you can say, well, what kind of clothes should I wear for that? And it'll actually speak it back to you and you're speaking back and forth. So students can get speaking and pronunciation practice, but then they can also get that feedback from it when it's saying, well, hey, it's not 
it's when I speak, then I've done this in the past with just like Google, uh, Google voice typing. When I speak, what I'm trying to say is not necessarily coming out as the, the right words. And so then it's misunderstanding me at some point. So then you can actually ask it and you can say, Hey, uh, this word, you heard me say this, but I was trying to say this and they could type it in at this point. And it could say, um, can you help me with the pronunciation of this or help me understand what I'm, what I'm missing with the sounds here? And then it'll go back into it. So you can actually set it up in different ways to say like hey be my pronunciation teacher um you know if i'm saying words that don't make sense inside of here help me fix the pronunciation to be able to adjust it into ways that are helpful there so so there's a lot of ways if you just start thinking about it and going oh hold on a second you know essentially you kind of have to think about it as though you're talking to a person who has specialized in whatever you want to talk about and instead of thinking of it as a, just a program and you go, what do I do? You go, well, what if I were talking to a pronunciation specialist and you put that in as your prompt, right? Imagine you are a pronunciation specialist and then, and then you say, okay, now this is going to guide the conversation. Um, and so then the students can use that as ways to customize their own learning to what they need to learn and, and focus on rather than uh, what has traditionally been the case, even with good use of ed tech is like, well, we're still doing something that, you know, 30 people in the class can use. And maybe, you know, for example, I have a student from Russia, I have a student from Iran, I have a student mm-hmm. from China, and they all have different pronunciation <laughs> issues. And so they don't all necessarily need to learn that exact same thing. But if they can customize and go, well, let me spend more time focused on this sound or that sound, um, they can work on that as well. So there's lots of cool ways to play with it there. And I'm, I'm guessing that students feel more relaxed, less threatened if they, you know, as opposed to doing these kind of activities with a peer or with a teacher, where there's a fear of being embarrassed, perhaps with a computer, they're not as as nervous about making uh, mistakes. I know from my experience uh, speaking Spanish, I spent two months in Guatemala and I didn't really learn more Spanish, but I found just relaxing was such, mm-hmm. was such a huge part of, of, of speaking better. Yeah. Um, did you find that to be true that um yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean you're gonna get these little micro reactions and i, I don't want to say necessarily aggressions but like if you're dealing with someone maybe they get tired of like okay i'm not understanding you or whatever else it is right and like even if someone's really friendly you might see the little look on their face and you go oh maybe i should maybe i'm wasting your time or whatever else it is and and uh you know these bots are are endlessly patient (laughs) and so uh so you can just keep on working with it and keep on going with it and it'll it it will uh you know it'll it'll lower that effective filter right which is what we talk about in the the learning process there and so so then they can say hey as i start to feel more comfortable with this now i'm ready to try and talk to my classmates a little bit about it or you know i was i was anxious about it yesterday but i did a little bit of practice at home for 30 minutes and now i was getting some feedback and i think i'm ready to try it out and see what happens when I talk to a real person, right? And so, um, so absolutely, uh, you know, the the, the <laughs> you know, it's like patience doesn't even exist. It's just it's just there, right? It's just ready to help and help and help and help. And so, with that understanding and without the fear of judgment, um, people are a lot more likely to take risks. And I think that's really valuable. Very valuable, absolutely. That is great. Well, what a great example. Um, I want to. I don't, this may seem like shifting gears, but I, I don't think it is. I noticed in one of your podcasts, you talked with Katie McNamara, whom I'm a, I'm a big fan of, and you mm-hmm. talked about media literacy. And I do, you know, my focus has been on kind of connecting media literacy with AI and, and computer science in general. Um, how do you see, what do you see the role of media literacy? And if you want to address it, particularly with English learners, 
that would be great. Or just, just any thoughts you have on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that this is something that we all kind of, I mean, there's a lot of conversation around it in the ed tech field, right? So being media literate, um, there's really great resources out there, Common Sense Media and all of those things, um, which are wonderful. Um, but I still think we've kind of I hesitate to say, I'm not trying to say it in a wrong way, but we've fallen short uh, in in helping students understand what that means and how to uh, behave appropriately online. Um, obviously, we see a lot of really bad behavior um from adults online and uh you know and so so we're not necessarily doing a good job of teaching what this stuff means right and so i think that with um helping students understand it, it's actually a lot easier now if we just weave it in on a daily basis right so um so if we're using uh even i teach in person classes we're still used uh at my school we use canvas as our lms um and so okay how am i using this appropriately right whether it's be simple things like am I showing a cartoon picture of a sunflower as my profile picture or am I actually showing my face right am I being a good digital citizen here um am you know I, I tell my students to kind of as a joke at the beginning of the semester I always say well our LMS is not a dating site please don't try you know, to like, to send each other, you know, like the, these messages are not, this is not the place for all of those things. But then we also get into things like, hey, well, as we're linking out to resources, and we're starting to try and understand what we're looking at, what can we trust? And what can we not trust? And how do we start breaking down? Um, you know, I mean, the it was uh, not not great, but but it was a good educational opportunity when uh, fake news was a big trending word, and it still exists, right? Disinformation, all of these things. Um, but like, how do we break down whether or not this is reliable information? How do we understand that if we're taking if we're saying that hey, we we don't just have these sources that come from the library and from books anymore, but now we can get in any kind of information on anywhere? How do we start understanding what's true and what's not true? And that actually becomes really it's a long conversation. I'll, I'll spare you some of the details of it, but in the ESL world, then it becomes hard for students because they're trying to master the language and they might not necessarily see little hints that we would see as um, native speakers of a language to go, well, hold on a second. Grammar issues in this article maybe show us that this is something to be a little bit aware, uh, you know, wary of, right? And then the students might not necessarily see that grammar issue as they're reading through it. And so how can we help them with other ways to kind of recognize or to see like, hey, this is, there's something kind of fishy going on here, or the claim is like, the claim is a little bit too bold without supporting evidence, right? And so, um, so we can get into all of these ideas of understanding what information is being presented to us and how it's being presented to us and then um how do we balance that out and say like hey this is something that i can trust or this is something that's pushing a little bit too much and the the final part to this is it's cultural right because media literacy and the things that we understand here the way that we look at it in america might be different than the way that you would look at it you know in uh, south korea or the way that you would look at it in um india or wherever it is right and so so we also have really good opportunities to look at that and go well well, from an American perspective, this is what we would be looking at. And this is how we would say that we're trusting it or that we're not trusting it. And that opens them up to be able to say, oh, wait a second, I never saw the world in that way or never thought of it in that way. And that's really one of the joys of teaching language <laughs> is that they can kind of start to see, oh, okay, hold on a second. The, the way of thinking is different here. And that helps people uh, you know, expand their global view, which is 
such a great part of what I do for, for my job. And That's so I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, a key part of media literacy is understanding that, okay, somebody may interpret this message, whatever it is, differently than I do. And sometimes, like you said, it's hard to step out of. And that's the kind of skill that I think is transferable and really can apply in, in you know, just conversation or real world situations where it's like, okay, well, I said this, and uh, but this doesn't bother me. But this person, it seemed to really bother. Okay, mm-hmm. well, you know, why is that? And having that uh, that empathy and, and that perspective taking is such a valuable skill, you know, throughout life. So I yeah. think that's, that's a great, a great aspect of, of mini literacy that you're talking about. And, and also, you know, kind of going back to what you're talking about with the image generators, when part of media literacy is analyzing, you know, could be analyzing a commercial or something and you see, okay, well, what, what's the purpose of this commercial and what are they trying to do with, let's say with these political ads that we'll be seeing in the near future, are they trying to scare us? Are they trying to, you know, make us connect to make it seem like this person is a, you know, a person I like and how are they doing that? Listen to the music and look at the lighting and, and look at the camera angle and these kinds of things. Uh, I think that really connects with what you were talking about as far as looking at images and then putting words to them, describing them. And, and in that analysis, uh, I think those language skills could be developed and not just for English learners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the ones that I always think about when I was, I think I was reading a, a like a Lonely Planet years ago or something like that, but I thought it was so fascinating because they were talking about um, in Thailand when people smile, it can just be a smile, but it can also be like a nervousness of th- something bad is about to happen, right? And so understanding wow. that, you know, like they were saying, like, uh, I mean, it's kind of a, a I'm not trying to scare people from going to Thailand. Please glow. It's a wonderful country. <laughs> but but there was something along the lines of like, well, um, I was being mugged by this person and they were smiling at me because I, you know, because I knew that they knew that from behind me, someone was going to come and, you know, do something. Right. <laughs> so it was like, it was right. like, but they were smiling and it was like a, it was like a nervous smile. And so it's like, oh, okay. Like when you understand these things. Right. And and so it's like, well, then what does that picture that we're showing the picture of in this media mean? Right. Does that represent the same thing? And it might be really obvious to, us as Americans, right? right, and and so obvious that we wouldn't even ask about it. But to the next person who is needing to learn about this language and about this culture, it might not stand out to them. And so it's really, uh, it's it's fascinating to be able to pull those things apart and help people understand those parts as well. And I love these examples of you know we're talking about school and talking about English learners and learning about learning subject matter. But I think the way that we just have to keep moving in this direction of connecting it to real life. You know, as I go to schools and I talk to teachers, they feel that a lot of students are just disconnected from the content. They don't care about the content. And, you know, what I think that we need to strive to do is make it relevant, make it about the real world, make it about their experience, let them bring their experiences to the content. Um, How do you, how do you move in that direction? Well, I think that's I think that's really the big shift that we're going to see ultimately here in in education is like in the past we 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 up until now we've lived in a world where students have to learn whatever the teachers tell them about and and their motivation to do it is because that's going to be what gets them through the school, right? Or whatever it is. And so um, we actually did an episode, our last episode on this for, for the diesel podcast was uh, titled will AI kill TESOL? Um, And for, 
for those who are not in the field, TESOL is teaching English as a second or other language. That's that's my field, right? And so, um, and and ultimately the conversation, you know, I mean, and I reserve all rights to change my mind. So I want to be careful here because I know this is a, a a tense topic. But I think the the real thing is what are students' motivations for learning anything, right? And those are going to change a lot now because we're not in a world anymore where, you know, I have to learn this because it's going to help me with my business necessarily, or I have to learn, um, you know, I have to learn how to do geometry because, uh, because if I don't do that, then I can't get into my biology, you know, job in the future, whatever else it is. Right. And so all these ideas of like, Hey, we're, you know, one, one closed gate leads to the next closed gate leads to the next, next closed gate. Right. All those gates are blown open. <laughs> so we really have to have a real conversation around what's the reason the student's learning anything? What is their motivation? What are the things that they want to learn and what's going to be valuable to them? And then how do we help them track backwards to see that the learning process to that is going to be actually get them to what they want to do, right? And so um, I think that's going to be the really hard part for people is that we have to, we actually have to show the students that path all the way through um, because they might not see the value when we, a lot of times we've kind of just pushed them forward, right? So wherever level they're at, we're just pushing them forward. Okay, get to the next thing, get to the next thing. And now it's almost kind of like we're pulling them towards the goal and 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 you know, in enticing them to come to the to whatever it is that we're looking at so i we had said on this on that episode um or i had said uh i think that there will be major parts of my field that will ultimately disappear because students aren't going to be motivated necessarily for example to learn how to write in academic prose in English because they can say what they want to say in their language, have it automatically translated and put it into MLA format in English for them, right? And so it's like, well, what's the motivation for me? I don't really care about becoming a good English speaker. I, I care about becoming an engineer, right? And so it's just one example. And so I, I am interested to see how student motivations will change what they're enrolling in for future classes and what they're learning at and then how that will infect enrollments overall and then certain types of classes will disappear um, I do think that in my field uh, you know there will be students so for example hey I just moved to America I'm in fifth grade I need to learn how to talk to other American kids yes of course there will still be a place for ESL for those students hey I'm out here in you know rural Mongolia I'm never planning on leaving here do I need to learn English if I you know if I'm just going to use it a few times or whatever and I can use it on the computer? maybe that EFL, the English as a foreign language section starts to fade away in the future. And so, um, you know, I talked to a friend recently said, well, that's a, you know, there's, it's interesting, a cynical perspective. And I said, well, I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm not thinking about it in a negative way. I'm just really trying to think about what the motivation of future students is going to be. So whatever right. field you're talking about, that motivation is going to be changing and what, and students are going to be better uh, recognizing for themselves what they need to know to get to that place. And so that's where I think we're going to see a lot of big changes with uh you know with the way that students move and then and then how the uh the education industry changes and makes adapt adaptions to right. that right because you know one of the things that teachers i don't think complain about but a big concern is you know they're burnout there's so many demands and it's like oh we want them to have 
ethnic studies and media literacy and computer science and financial literacy, and we want to connect to their past experiences. And most teachers would agree, well, that's a that's a really good idea, but we don't have enough time to plan those kinds of interdisciplinary relevant lessons. Well, maybe now you do, because mm-hmm. you can use ChatGPT <laughs> if you can think about you know, kind of flesh out prompts or flesh out ideas for what that might look like, then perhaps you uh, we can plan these kind of lessons that are more relevant and more interdisciplinary, which is which is hard to do. I think it'll take a long time because, as we know, just from being experienced in schools, interdisciplinary teaching is is tough, and it's mm-hmm. it'll it's not going to happen overnight. But I think it's a, it's necessary for student motivation and, and to make things more relevant, like you, like you described. Well, I think what we'll also be able to do at some point and, and, you know, we'll be building out our lesson plans through things like chat GPT. Right. But then we'll be right. able to say, Hey, um, you know, make these examples connected to blank. Right. And then that blank will become tied into from spreadsheets on information from each of the individual students right so it'll be like okay so um this student really is interested in um you know black history in america and that's going to come in for that student right and this this student is interested in you know um basketball and that's you know it's going to come in for them and this student is interested in uh you know um becoming a biologist right and so even though it will cover the same conceptual ideas on the on the big level the focus and the details will come in for every student to be totally customized and really help them make connections to things that they already understand about. So I see a real future for that where we're able to say like, hey, now we are dealing with interdisciplinary because I as the teacher then also want to weave in, you know, um, uh, you know, history you know american history and tie that into all of these things right and so so we can actually start to really weave a tapestry of learning that's that even though we're going to have the loom for example you know to to pull the analogy we're going to have the loom the students threads are going to all be different colors but it will still come out as something that we can all understand and appreciate the the end beauty and the end uh the end product is still something that everybody can recognize as a rug or whatever that ends up being right well that is beautiful and exciting and uh, all those things and I had not thought of that as kind of a, a form letter for differentiated relevant instruction that's that's really a really exciting idea and uh, I hope that we uh, move in that direction I think that's probably a good place to to wrap things up I sure. want to thank you so much for this conversation I I learned a lot I thought it was very interesting and we appreciate your time and we will have in the podcast notes, we'll have your websites and podcasts and everything linked there for people to hear more from Brent. Is there any uh, any closing thoughts? Uh, no, just thank you so much. Uh, if there's anybody out there who's in the field of ESL, that website, AIinesl.com, is not meant to be just me. So if anybody's experimenting with stuff and wants to share their results, please uh, let me know and I'll be happy to post it on there as well. Um, all of this is just for teachers by teachers. So thank you. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Brent. The ITIL coordinators thank you for listening to this episode of Tech Lasso. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Also, follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes. Thank you again, and let us know how we are doing. Go to bit.ly slash techlasso.